A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. So let me ask, um, because this crosses over into polyandry, um, because uh, wasn't Josephine, um, I mean, her her mother was also married to a man who who was in the church and then excommunicated and then came back later. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Um, I think that it's harder for people to understand. I mean, Joseph having having sexual relationships with, with his plural wives while Emma is, is definitely, you know, struggling and and against it is hard enough, but adding another husband into the mix is, is kind of a difficulty. Will you talk about that story? Because I I think you say that there's only evidence that he had a sexual relationship with one, one of his, um, wives that was also married to another man. Is that correct? Um, you know, it may be on my website. The website's two and a half years old. And I'll be honest with you, the, the, the newest and latest and greatest is in the books. Um, but let me speak generally about polyandry and then okay. we'll focus on that as one of the three, uh, exceptions. Sure. Sure. Um, polyandry is not that hard to understand. The problem that we've had is that people are not telling us everything that we need to know to understand it. Um, the, there were 14 of Joseph's plural wives that had legal husbands. I argue that 11 of those were eternity-only ceilings. And I go through every one. I talk about why I think that's the case. Uh, eternity-only ceilings did occur. And the, uh, the, there are three of those, though, that were time and eternity. And Sylvia Sessions Lyons is one of those three. The uh, Todd Compton in his book gives a, a timeline that uh, would suggest sexual polyandry occurred. And just a couple of weeks ago, I emailed Todd and I said, Todd, I, he, he writes one of the endorsements for my book. And right in there, he says that there are things I disagree with Brian on. And I said, well, okay, let, let's find out what those are. I want to know. And he says, well, this is it. This is one of them. And I don't want to misrepresent Todd's position, but the new data, and this is stuff that wasn't available to Todd when he wrote in Sacred Loneliness, it shows it's very strong, I think, and certainly stronger than, than any of the evidence that he presents that what happened was that the, the two of them separated when Windsor was excommunicated in November of 1842, and Joseph was sealed to Sylvia for time and eternity with sexuality after that. The evidence that she was still cohabiting with with Windsor is just not there. And Todd uses a, a, a document that gives the date of February 8th, 1842, and I've shown in that same collection is a similar document that says 1843. So the timeline is not reliable that he gives, and the other circumstantial evidence is just not strong to, for what he's saying. And yet we have in the Andrew Jensen papers um, one declaration saying that it occurred after he was excommunicated, their, their, their marriage, and then she told her daughter Josephine that that she was sealed to Joseph when Windsor was out of the church. 
Todd just blows that off as, as misinformation, but I think it, it's accurate because it dovetails with these other sources. There's also a third source that says that they did divorce. And, and there are other things. We won't get into the details. You can read it there and all. But um, So there were three women who had time and eternity ceilings. Um, Sylvia Sessions is one. The other one is uh, Sarah Ann Whitney. And she was, uh, Joseph C. Kingsbury was asked to marry Sarah even after Joseph had married Sarah to make it look like Sarah was not Joseph's plural wife. But by everybody's accounting, this was not a sexual relationship. They paraded around Nauvoo, lived under the same roof. And later on in his life, Joseph Kingsbury issued a $8,000 bill to John Taylor for all of the upkeep that he'd made for Sarah over the years. So, you know, the evidence is strong. This wasn't a sexual relationship with Kingsbury, but it was possibly with Joseph. She's one of my maybe sexual uh, uh, wives with Joseph. Okay. And then the third one we don't know much about. Her name's Mary Heron. Okay. So you, you mentioned at the beginning when you were talking, you know, wanted to talk about polyandry in general, that it's easy it's easy to explain the idea behind polyandry. Um, my initial question is, as stated in Section 132, there are three reasons. Um, so that all of you know, all women can enter into the celestial kingdom by being sealed to a man um, for the raising up of posterity and for, what was the third? Just a restoration. Okay, and as a restoration of all things, that's right. Um, but it seems like polyandry, that, 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 that those three reasons wouldn't necessarily apply because um, in those cases where women were married to husbands, they could be sealed to their husbands, so they could enter into the celestial kingdom by being by virtue of being sealed to the man they're already mar married to. They could have children with the men that they're already married to, and they did right. And that they also um, that the restoration of all things would not necessarily apply to women who were already married to other men because Joseph could fulfill that with women who were single. So it seems like I mean, just you know. From that perspective, it would be really hard to justify it. So can you explain that and maybe try to, you know, how is it easy to explain polyandry? Um, the, uh, the answer is that the women chose Joseph for eternity over their legal husbands. And it's easy to understand that in the women whose husbands were non-members. Okay. And one of them, uh, Prescindia Huntington uh, Buell, her husband was an anti-Mormon. Well relative, but he wasn't going to be sealing. He wasn't active in the church. So in those three or four cases, we can see, okay, they're going to go to Joseph and be sealed. Now there are six cases where the husbands are very active. And I go through all of this in, in the book and, and, uh, it's possible that some of these men may have like Henry Jacobs and Zina Huntington, that maybe Zina said, Henry, uh, Henry was a tough personality. And, and I know we have his his uh, uh, progeny and, and, uh, are, are out there. I don't want to offend anybody, but he was a tough personality, and it, it's not uh, unheard of in my to me to think that maybe Zina said, look, I, I think I want Joseph for eternity. We have two sealing dates for Zina. Maybe the second one was a time in eternity where Henry is able to go get his own plural wives, but he's just serving as a front husband, as Joseph Kingsbury had done. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that none of these men complained about Joseph allowing these marriages. And Joseph taught the woman gets to have her choice. Now, even with all of that, it still seems weird to me that six women with active LDS husbands would choose Joseph over their legal husbands for eternity. But none of them complained. And so should we complain? 
I mean, there's plenty of anti-Mormons that are willing to complain about this, but we have no record from any of these active LDS complaining about what happened. So fill in the blanks, you know. I, I, I'm sitting here smiling because I think that there are women listening who are probably smiling as well. <laughs> the idea that you could choose to be sealed to another man you like better <laughs> than your own husband is um, is maybe the the first fair play <laughs> I've, I've heard. I, not that I want to make light of it, but that, that's an interesting well, perspective. See, it's an interesting phenomenon because these women were married without any thought of eternity. You and I today, when we marry, we marry for time and eternity. That's just the thought process. In that day, they were already married, but, you know, this option. And we've got several people saying, yeah, you, you could be sealed to somebody else. And apparently that's what these women chose. We do have a couple of the husbands that were very disappointed uh, that, the, that their legal wife chose Joseph. And, and there's evidence that a couple of the husbands were kind of ticked at their wives for doing so and kind of abandoned them a little later on in life. But those wives were not married for time? They did not have sexual relationships the, with Joseph? No, no. These were eternity only. But you can kind of see a, a rift forming or being manifested in later behavior between the husband and wife, knowing the wife is sealed to Joseph for eternity. And, of course, the husband is marrying other time and eternity plural wives. And, and this, this woman who's sealed to Joseph is just kind of left on her own. Is Orson, is it Orson Hyde, one of those? And Miranda, Orson was so dedicated to Joseph. There, there is an account that Orson was ticked off that, that, uh, that Miranda chose Joseph, but he got over it fast because uh, Joseph was sealing a plural wife to him just within months of him returning from Palestine. Did they later divorce? Um, Miranda, if I remember correctly, was sealed to Joseph in the Nauvoo Temple. No, was sealed to Orson in the Nauvoo Temple, but then in 1856 or sometime later, 63, was sealed back to Joseph for eternity, which just tells you it was a choice thing. Um, so wait a minute. She was sealed to both men. Well, she you would you can loose and you can seal. Whoever is is sealing you can also loose you from something before. And because these were Joseph's wives, they were allowed. Um, if in the Nauvoo Temple, if a woman could come and convince Brigham that Joseph had uh, proposed to her, they were allowed to be sealed to Joseph for eternity. That was a primary claim. And there were two or three women who had turned him down during this life, who were later sealed to him in the Nauvoo Temple, and even some, I think, one or two later. That's there were five women that turned him down. So there's not necessarily evidence that she divorces Orson. Um, we don't know what whether it was a time in eternity or an eternity only sealing to Joseph. Okay. We don't know. She's one of three that I, I put in a question mark, that it's possible that it was time in eternity and Orson serves as a front husband, but we just don't know. None of the, the, the women were sealed to their husbands um, during Joseph's lifetime. There was some flip-flopping in the Nauvoo Temple and, and during the period in between. And it, it, again, it just illustrates to me that these women get to choose. So they could change their mind. Yeah, they could change. The power to seal is the power to loose. And, and you know, you can loose on earth and on, in heaven as well as seal. So, yeah, it was allowed. Is that allowed today? Um. Yeah, it's discouraged. Uh, as somebody who's divorced, I, I hope it is, So, because uh, I hope to be resealed to somebody sometime. Okay. Um, 
Let's let's go back then. We were can, talking about. Can, can I yeah. interrupt though? There's yes. one more. Th- this is a very important concept, and I understand the listeners are hearing a lot of new things, and you may think that I'm just full of nonsense. But if you look at the data, um, these new ideas need to be dealt with, and I'm excited to have uh, people read through the evidence and and give me some feedback. But the other important thing is that Joseph Smith taught that the new and everlasting covenant causes all old covenants to be done away. It introduces eternal marriage as a new and everlasting covenant. So a woman who has a ceiling in the new and everlasting covenant of marriage and a legal marriage covenant is not going to have two husbands after the ceiling because the ceiling is going to cause the legal marriage covenant to be done away. And no, at no time does a woman have two husbands in Joseph Smith's theology. When you get Fawn Brody and other authors saying, oh yeah, Joseph's sleeping with them tonight, and they'll be with their legal husbands tomorrow night. That's just historical fiction, and it completely ignores Joseph's teachings. But also, in section 132, verses 41, 42, 61 through 63, it describes three polyandrous situations, and I alluded to them earlier, but they're all adultery. And in two cases, the woman will be destroyed. So people who want to say that, that this, this polyandry, sexual polyandry is practiced by Joseph need to deal with the theology. And to date, none of the proponents, which is basically everybody but me, um, has dealt with that issue. I'm currently in an exchange with Michael Quinn. And you can go to my website and get a download of, of my latest response to him. And I hear he has is updated his, and he promised to send me a copy, but I haven't seen it yet. But he may do that. But Michael is absolutely adamant that sexual polyandry occurred. But again, I don't think his evidence is strong, and I, and he's yet to deal with the theological ramifications. Because really, uh, if you think about it, Joseph's first um, polyandry. When you say sexual, uh, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding you. When you say sexual polyandry, you mean that the woman was sleeping with Joseph and her husband at the same time. Is yeah, that thank correct? You. Yeah. It, okay. Um, and I can get off on all kinds of crazy things. Make sure that, that I'm speaking okay, in a way so, that makes sense. So you're making the distinction that if Joseph had a sexual relationship with a woman who was also married to another man, that was during a time period when that man was out of the church or after that woman. I mean, what would be the three? I think you there are three exceptions to the 14 where it is possible that they had a sexual relationship and there is evidence of that. What were the actual situations for those the, three? The let's, dynamics of yeah, those let, three. Let's, let's discuss that yeah, just no, to it, set that apart. I, I mentioned it briefly, but it's, it's very important. Um, as Sylvia Lyon, and I argue that, that she separated from Windsor when he was excommunicated. I think the evidence is real strong. Okay. And that Joseph was sealed to her after. So it's consecutive marriages. Okay. In the second case, this is where Sarah Ann Whitney marries Joseph, may have been sexual relations in that relationship. Apparently, somebody's going to accuse Joseph of bigamy. So Joseph asks Joseph Kingsbury to marry her in a pretend marriage, and they parade around like they're married to get take the heat off of Joseph. But every, by everybody's accounting, there's no sexuality in that marriage. That's the second one. Okay. The third one is a woman named Mary Heron, and we just know almost nothing about her. And I'm hopeful that researchers will be able to tell us more about what's going on, because that husband stayed with her more or less throughout the rest of her life. And we just don't have any details. Okay. So those are the three. So there's not evidence that, that the sexual relationship is, is occurring, you know, at the same time. Correct. Okay. When people portray that they're, they're making it up. It's just not there. And there's also no evidence, even though people say or refer to this as possibly happening of Joseph going up to a, a man saying, I want your wife, give her to me or else. 
and then taking her and marrying her and, and, and all that. That, so far as we have any record, that never happened. He did approach a couple of the 12 and, and demand their wives as a test, but didn't, didn't marry either one of them, even though apparently he might have been able to. Okay. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask now, and it's probably appropriate now, is because the word bigamy has come up. Um, it was against the law at the time to take multiple wives. Um, so we have kind of a conflict here because Joseph knows he's breaking the law. Um, he's denying that he's in, in these relationships publicly in the times and seasons. So he's obviously in conflict and, and, and you know, obviously worried about being arrested or accused, you know, of breaking the law. And at the same time, he's establishing, you know, a doctrine that we honor and sustain the law, um, Article of Faith number 12. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, Article of Faith number 12, and then there's a verse in, in 58, um, section 58, that talks about if you're keeping God's laws, you don't, you don't have to worry about keeping the laws of the land or something. Um, and those are often quoted as, as to condemn Joseph and the other church leaders for this period, and I can understand that, but if you go to section 98, it talks about the laws that are constitutional. In other words, in section 58, um, I don't think God was giving governments of the world carte blanche to write any law and expect the saints to follow it, no matter what it said. The Lord gets much more specific in section 98, where he says that they are, they are, uh, allowed to embrace the laws that are constitutional, and whatever is more or less of this cometh of evil. And the saints believed very firmly that plural marriage was constitutional right. And it wasn't until Utah and the, uh, I want to say it was George Reynolds' case went up and they, the uh, Supreme Court ruled that polygamy was not uh, a, a right to, to practice uh, religiously. And, and yet leaders still continued to believe that it was a constitutional right. And that's how they, they justified um, going against these laws that they felt were unconstitutional. So was that discussed at the time period? I mean, that those those kinds of discussions we can pull out of the records during Joseph Smith's life. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that was a conflict that was acknowledged by the people in Nauvoo at the time. Well, like I said, the only contemporaneous records that we have dealing with Joseph Smith and plural marriage are Section 132 and excerpts from William Clayton's journal. And so I, there's no record. We don't know what they were thinking or what they were saying. And and, and this really is, is a problem just in everything. And that's why I've, I've got every recollection, which are not the best sources, but it's all we have. Okay. So we don't know. We don't Good know question. if this was don't an act. This, this is mostly a topic that has come up afterwards and been discussed by historians and people. Well, in Utah, they, they dealt with it head on because they were passing new laws that made what they have been doing for a decade or more illegal. And right. they didn't think that was very nice or very right, but in, in, they were also feeling it was unconstitutional. And Brigham, I, I think some of them thought that the Supreme Court would side with them, and they didn't at all. Okay. Uh, one, uh, one of the other difficulties is that um, Joseph married some young women uh, that were 14 years old. Can you talk about those relationships? And um, you don't believe that they were sexual in nature. Is that right? Um, there were two 14-year-olds. But let me say generally, in that day and age, marrying a 16-year-old wasn't that big of a deal. 
But marrying a 14-year-old would have been eyebrow-raising, okay? It wouldn't have been scandalous, but people would have said, really, 14? That would have been a little out of the norm. So people who say it was in the norm, I disagree. Um, but that being said, there were two 14-year-old wives, um, Nancy Maria Winchester and Helen Mar Kimball. And we know nothing about uh, Nancy Maria Winchester, just nothing. We have an affidavit saying they were married, one other witness, I think, um, and all of this is on my website and in my books. If you want to see the evidences for all of these wives, it's all just posted there. Um, so we don't know. If anybody says there's sexual relations there, they're making it up because there's no evidence. But the case of Helen Mark Kimball has been touted by a number of, of uh, uh, authors and, and others saying that there was sexual relations, that Joseph was attracted sexually to a 14-year-old, oh my gosh, you know, which really isn't, wouldn't be a very good thing because, like I say, that's a young wife. But when we get into the evidence, and again, I, I appeal to the evidence. If people if people are going to say negative things about Joseph, I want to see the evidence. Because personally, Sarah, I think when all of the evidence gets out there, Joseph Smith does just fine. I mean, it's a hard topic. It's complex. But his behavior is understandable. And I still think he was a prophet and a virtuous man. Now I'm sounding like an apologist, but I just want to throw that in there, that, that the importance of getting to the evidence. When people say Joseph's having sex with a 14-year-old, Okay, what is the evidence? Well, if we look at the evidence, there is a poem that she wrote in 1881 to her family, and in it she complains about being a fettered bird. And then there's another quote from an anti-Mormon source that says that, quoting her saying that if, if she'd have known it, she thought it was just a ceremony. If she'd known it was more than a ceremony, she never would have done it. And both people are saying, well, see, she must have been having sex with Joseph because she's not able to go out and, and go to the socials at the Nauvoo mansion. Um, that's speculation. Todd Compton thinks that the evidence that he had is entirely ambiguous, which is probably the best place to be based on the evidence that Todd had. However, there's some new observations. Um, if you look at the Temple Lot testimony, and let me give you just a little background because it's very important with respect to Helen Mark Kimball. Um, in 1892, the RLDS Church is suing the Temple Lot Church, the Hedrakites, they don't like that name, it's the Church of Christ Temple Lot, um, for possession of the Temple Lot and independence. And so the Temple Lot Church is saying, look, Joseph taught polygamy, and the RLDS Church doesn't, so they aren't the natural heirs. So you see how polygamy is kind of a big deal. If Joseph taught it and the RLDS church is not practicing it, then they can't be the natural heirs of Joseph's church. So they come out to Utah to get depositions to prove that Joseph taught full polygamy, not spiritual polygamy, not eternity-only marriages, not unconsummated marriages, but full polygamy with sexual relations. Well, at that point, nine of Joseph Smith's plural wives were still alive. They call Emily Partridge, and she testifies that she had sexual relations with Joseph. They call Melissa Lott, who lives down in Lehigh. She comes up. She also testifies of carnal intercourse with Joseph. That's her words. But then an interesting thing happens, because Helen Mark Kimball lives in Salt Lake. She has written two books against the RLDS Church, Champion, Polygamy, and How Wrong the RLDS Church is on that topic. But they don't call her. She lives in Salt Lake. She's just a few blocks from where they're taking the depositions. Instead, Wilford Woodruff personally writes a letter to Lucy um, Walker, who lives up in Logan. She gets on the train, comes down, and testifies that she also has sexual relations with Joseph. She's a full polygamous wife. They also skipped three polyandrous wives. 
Sina Huntington, who lived in the Lion House, just a block or two from where they were doing the depositions, is skipped. And the other polyandrous wives are just skipped. So what we have is a need for women to testify of sexual relations with Joseph. And they go to Logan. They go to Lehi to get these women. They skip all three polyandrous wives. And they skip Helen Mark Kimball, who was 14, who has already manifested a strong spirit in defending polygamy against the RLDS church and who lives close by. I think that's a really strong indication that if she could have come down there and testified of a full plural marriage with Joseph, they'd have called her in a second. I don't think she could have. Um, that's that's my take. So the, anybody who says How there was... How old was she at that time? At that time? Uh, well, let's see. She was married to Joseph in, was it 42? So she'd been 28, um, 64-ish. So could it have been because she was ill or is there any evidence that, that maybe a health issue or something would have prevented her from testifying? That's a good question. If, if you read her journal, which Todd Compton actually uh, transcribed, she knew these people were in town and she had gone out on one of the days that they were doing the deposition. So, but they would have talked to her, you know, weeks and months in advance and she was, she was in good health, you know, during this period. So there was no reason that she couldn't have gone down there if you read her journal. So is there evidence that there was a lot of sexual relationships going on, that, that sex was occurring often and frequently with, with these wives? With, with Joseph Smith and his plural wives? I argue that the evidence is not there, and there's several observations that I think are, are important. For example, Joseph Smith had eight children with Emma. Um, four of them died in infancy, um, and four lived to adulthood. Only three of them had children. So, but there's eight pregnancies that we know of with Emma. If we look at the plural wives, and, and he was sealed, as I said, to 35, and at least 13 of them, I think, were non-sexual, eternity only, and it may have been quite a few more, but we know he consummated 12 and maybe 15. But it's an interesting observation that, uh, for example, Sarah Ann Whitney, who was 17 when she was sealed to Joseph and was married to him for 23 months, um, we don't have actual evidence of sexuality, but after Joseph's death, she married Heber C. Kimball, and she was pregnant three months later, and she had seven children with, with Heber. So she, this is a fertile woman. Um, Melissa Lott was 19 when she was sealed to Joseph, and she was only married to him for about uh, eight or nine months, but she did testify that she had sexual relations with him in two locations, a mansion and out at her father's farm. Uh, it was Joseph's farm. Her father managed it. But but she was married after Joseph's death and became pregnant 11 weeks after the wedding and bore him seven children. So she's a, another a very fertile woman. A, another example, Lucy Walker. She was 17 when she married Joseph, married to him for 14 months. Three months after her marriage, her marriage to Heber Kimball, um, after Joseph's death, she was pregnant. Again, three months is all it took, and she bore him nine children. And there are other women, like Emily Partridge had, had a child, Eliza Partridge. So if Joseph is having sexual relations with these women and they're not getting pregnant, and the evidence is strong they weren't, um, it's curious that these women were able to have all these children to get pregnant so quickly after uh, Joseph Smith's death. That is interesting. So by virtue of the the amount of children they had and how quickly they had them after they were married to their the, the husbands after Joseph died would indicate that they didn't have sex very often 
with Joseph because children were not a result. Is that right? Right. And, and I think these women would have been motivated to try to do it because they would have loved to have had a child in that, in that realm. They would have been looked upon as, as favored. Um, and, and again, having children was, was the reason for marriage in that age. So, um, uh, this brings up one more little question I want you to address. So you're saying that women would have felt they would have felt driven to have children with Joseph. Are there accounts where anyone expresses that? Or was that just kind of the overall culture of the time? Where, where does that come from? Do you know, the only person that I, I know uh, expressed that desire is a woman named Augusta Cobb. And it, she was a really eccentric woman, but she wrote a letter to Brigham Young. She married Brigham Young, and there probably were sexual relations there. We, we're not sure. But she was ticked off at Brigham because Brigham uh, allegedly told her to not talk to Joseph um, when they got to Nauvoo because Brigham wanted to marry her and, and, and didn't want to have any competition. So she marries Brigham, and then Augusta, years later, uh, accuses Brigham of, of preventing her from marrying Joseph because then she could have had a king for a child by bearing Joseph some offspring, a, a son. And other than that one, and it's a very entertaining book. Connell O'Donnell has got a book coming out where all of these are in it, and it's it's really interesting reading, um, and it'll be nice to have that out. So I actually know of um, of a of a popular blogger, and I know that this this theory has been passed around that that there there are people who who have looked at the evidences that there have been no sexual relationships in any of the wives. And in fact, some people take that to an extreme theory that Joseph Smith didn't have any plural wives at all. So can you talk about, um, the, uh, maybe the possibility that, you know, some people consider that there are no sexual relationships at all. And then maybe talk a little bit to that idea that there is no polygamy at all. Okay. Yeah. Um, the issue of sexuality comes up commonly. Um, I have, and it's all in an appendix, uh, I think we've validated that at least 12 of the plural marriages were consummated. And there's some kind of ambiguous evidence for three more. So we have 15. But I argue that sexual relations were not common in these plural marriages. Um, and part of the reason is that it would have been a difficult thing to do during this period uh, the reason I say that is that Hiram Smith, Joseph's own brother, he was church patriarch, he was assistant pre uh, associate president, he did not learn about plural marriage until May of 1843. Will William Law didn't learn about it till the middle of 1843. We don't have a month. So if Joseph Smith is jumping from bed to bed to bed, he's doing it without these two people knowing about it. Also, Emma didn't learn about it until the spring of 1843. So he is doing this without people realizing it. And it's interesting because apparently Clara Marvel, that's not a name you'll recognize, but she was a member of the Relief Society. And she was living with one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. I think it was Agnes Smith. I could be wrong on that. But, but she apparently saw something between Joseph and Agnes. We don't know if it was sexual or if it was just affection or what. And so she goes to the Relief Society based on what she has seen. It's the church president, it's Emma's husband, but it does not stop her from bringing this up and, and making a big to-do, and it's all over in the uh, minutes of the Relief Society, that Clara saw something that was inappropriate for Joseph to be doing with Agnes. And they, they put together a committee, and we don't know what they did to Clara, what, how they, they made this right with her, but eventually she acknowledges that there was nothing wrong. 
My guess is they just told her that plural marriage had been restored and that, that Agnes was a plural wife, but we don't know that. They may have just convinced her that it would be better for her to have not thought there was anything wrong there. or some, They may have used other reasoning, but we don't know what it was. But I, I share that with you to show that if Joseph is, is, is jumping around from plural wife to plural wife, as some authors have even recently asserted, it would have required a lot of accomplices that just don't seem to be there when you count the individuals who were not accomplices, like Hiram Smith and Emma and, and apparently these other people in the Relief Society. On the other hand... The, what do you mean by accomplice? Like he would have had to have assistance in going from wife to wife in well, some way? Well, he'd have to find a place for, for them to, to get together. It couldn't be the mansion. And all of these women lived with somebody else so that somebody else would have needed to have been told about it. And and what's interesting is that Eliza R. Snow later related how she was a, a plural wife and she was living with, I think it was Martha McBride, and they lived together for months. And neither of them knew that both of them were sealed to Joseph until one day Joseph said, you know, uh, go ahead and tell her because, you know, so if he was seeing either of them with any kind of physical uh, interaction, the other, even though they lived together, wasn't witnessing it. But there was a driving force. I mean, these women saw themselves as Joseph's plural wives, and they were, a lot of them, wanting to have children with him. That was a big deal for those women. If you're going to be a wife, having Joseph's child would have been a really cool thing for them to do. And so they would have, have enjoyed that opportunity, but the evidence just doesn't support that there were very many. And then once Hiram learns about it, and Emma learns about it, then you've got the problem because Emma is trying to prevent it completely, and she knows some of the plural wives. So she's got some spies out. We've got an account on that. So I'm, I'm thinking after Emma learned, it would be even harder for him to have been having sexual relations. But we do have accounts that he consummated 12 with possibly three more. Okay. You mentioned Hiram. What was Hiram's come from? Was he against it? Was he supportive? Did he go back and forth? What was his perspective? Well, there's an interesting story that Brigham tells later. Um, Hiram was fighting against it. He and William Law and others were were um, going. They were they were putting together a group to to try to put down polygamy. And Hiram had a suspicion Joseph was involved, and it didn't seem to matter to him. And he got up in a meeting that was in the. Um, it may have been in the mansion. We think it was probably in the, in the uh, homestead, but it, it was a crowded room. And he gets up and he says, here's the Book of Mormon. Here's the uh, Doctrine and Covenants. This is all that we need. Uh, you know, this is the, the entire word of God. The Bible, too, of course, was, was on the stack. And what he was really saying is that if there's a revelation that plural marriage is okay, it can't be real because this is all that we have. And Brigham related how Joseph had his hands in his in his 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 head in his hands and his his elbow on his knee and he nudged Brigham hard and says get up and and you know teach some truth here Brigham and Brigham says yeah I, I was fired up at that point with fire and with fire and powder and ball he said or something like that and he got up and he says you know I like these scriptures but it's it's continuous revelation that is the most important thing here and then after he he spoke Brigham Young had finished Hiram got up and acknowledged that that Brigham was right but the whole undercurrent, and, and many of the people in the room probably had no idea, but the undercurrent was that, you know, these new revelations, even authorizing polygamy, um, could be true or weren't true. And it was within weeks that Hiram approached Brigham, not Joseph. And Brigham says, you know, Joseph would tell you if he could, but yes, plural marriage has been restored and Joseph has several plural wives. And then uh, Hiram wept like a baby. 
uh, according to Brigham, and accepted it from that point forward. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. Okay. So um, can we address then the the theory, do you know where this comes from, by the way? where Who is the source of the idea that there is no sexual relationships with Joseph? Do you know who is, I mean, like, where does that come from? Well, I, I don't know for sure about that other than uninformed members or observers, but there is a, a group of RLDS fundamentalists, and now the RLDS Church is the Community of Christ, and I have many really good friends with them. But there is a fundamentalist group by Richard and Pamela Price, and they're, they're quite elderly. And they have a website, and they've published a great number of books. And, and one of their more popular books is entitled Joseph Smith Fought Polygamy. And they go through argument after argument after argument, trying to buoy up that position that Joseph uh, fought polygamy, was never a polygamist. Um, in their favor, their research is, is usually top top notch. It's it's top level stuff. In fact, some of their uh, their uh, chapters are the best stuff on that particular topic that anybody has done. And I quote them a number of places. But their overall thesis just it puts them in denial of overwhelming evidence that plural marriage did occur and sexual relations were a part of it. Um, just as a point of interest, can you give an example of where their of where their research is incredibly helpful? But uh, you know, I can't remember which. Okay. But I just remember reading through one of their chapters, going, "Wow, they have really gotten into the primary documents. There are new stuff I hadn't read before anywhere else." And but I apologize. Oh, that's okay. That that doesn't necessarily need to go in. It was just something I wanted to know. Um, so then there is even a, a more extreme case that Joseph Smith didn't practice polygamy at all. And do you know anything about that and where that originates? Well, it, it, it would be RLDS dogma from about 1875 clear up into the 1950s, perhaps 60s. Um, see, Joseph Smith III, I think he knew. And I have to say that carefully because I know there are members of the community of Christ who would disagree with me. But Joseph Smith III's counselor, one of his counselors in the first presidency, was William Marks. William Marks was the stake president in Nauvoo when, when Hiram Smith brought the revelation over and read it to the, to the high council. William Marks was there. Uh, there can be no question but what he knew that Joseph had taught this and that there was a revelation on it. And for him later to become a counselor to Joseph Smith III, it just stretches the imagination that he never would have told Joseph Smith III what he knew. Perhaps, but I just don't think that could have happened. I think Joseph Smith III must have known that there was good evidence, but he was dedicated to vindicating Joseph's uh, memory and his, his reputation in the world regarding polygamy, and he just went went forward with the idea that no, it didn't happen. So there's there's a bit of a problem historically there. So the <clears throat> the claim stopped being made in the 50s? Well, in the 1840s, we've got two or three people who remember talking to Emma and Emma acknowledging that it happened. But we don't find that later. 50s and 60s is when the RLDS church was organized. And, and we find in their very first publication acknowledgement that Joseph practiced it, and that just completely goes away um, by the 1870s and 80s and 90s. And there you find uh, Joseph Smith III very aggressively saying it didn't happen. Let me ask you a question. We're going to step out again. As you're doing this research, 
Is there any moment uh, during during the time of researching your book where your faith was affected, where you where you wondered or questioned or faltered at all? I mean, was any of this difficult for you personally in regards to your testimony? Uh, you know, there's there's two or three times when I would come upon a new piece of evidence that didn't fit and put Joseph in a negative light. And yeah, yeah, there were nights when, when I would lose some sleep and it was like, what's going on? And one of them, we have a a, an, a book that was authored by two two women where they quote Zina Huntington as saying she was Joseph Smith's wife in very deed. And... Uh, the the footnote is in error. And in fact, I've talked with one of them. One of them's deceased, and the other uh, just says, you know, I didn't want to put that in there. It was the other author who did. It's the gift that keeps on giving, she says, because people find out that it's in error. And, and this is a very good scholar, top-level top scholar who, who uh, allowed the other co-author to kind of have her way. Um, but I can remember that when I was trying to figure that one out before I'd gotten to the, the actual document, which is down in the archives and it's restricted. So I had to get permission. So there was a delay, um, that I was, I was really wondering what well, this just doesn't fit. And, and so those kinds of things and did Zina happen. was one of the Pollyann. Right. Pollyander's right. Wife. If Joseph was having sexual relations with her and, and, and she's having children with Henry Jacobs, her legal husband, you know, this was something that, that at that point in time, and it was already in the, in the research, it was, it was uh, an issue. But, you know, uh, the only other thing that I've had is, is uh, when, when Michael Quinn, and, and I like Michael, he's a very kind and incredibly accomplished individual, but um, in his response to my polyandry paper that I presented in Calgary at MHA, he, he really comes out hard against me. And, and, you know, they say, if you can't handle the, the fire, get out of the kitchen. So I, I try to be thick skinned about it, but I have to say that, that just having someone disagree with me over and over, and I went through all of these, and I'm, uh, I, I really think that, that there's problems with many of his disagreements. I'm totally comfortable now, but I will say that just recently that was that was not a pleasant experience for me. It wasn't testimony shaking, but he comes out with a lot of of quotes and things that appear, at least on the surface, to to support an alternative uh, position. So you did consider the evidences that he presented you, uh, in, you know, as a validation of his argument. I mean, did you go back and look at your research? Did you did you question it all? Maybe, you know, did you reconsider it all? And then in the end, find that you still felt confident with your own research? Well, you know, no evidence is perfect, and people are entitled to their own interpretations. But I finally, uh, I was waiting for the final version to come, and it didn't. So I just sat down on page one, and I outlined the whole thing at 70 pages 10,000 words. And then I just went through every one and went back to my research and went back to the original documents. And, and I came to the same conclusion that Michael comes to in one of the later uh, footnotes. He accuses me of expecting too much to have even one solid evidence for sexual polyandry because there isn't one solid evidence. And he doesn't present one. And he, he kind of admits that there isn't one, and, but he accuses well, accuse is too strong, but he says that, that I'm being maybe unreasonable to expect there to be any solid evidence for this phenomenon. But I, I disagree because sexual polyandry was just as weird to them as it is to us today. 
I mean, they were, there is no biblical prophetess who had two husbands that he could refer to. Joseph had his hands full just trying to get biblical polygamy restored. Can you imagine what kind of arguments he would have had to have enlisted to get 14 women to have, or even a fraction of those to engaged in sexual polyandry? Do you have evidence that it was strange? I mean, did, did people talk about the struggle or, I mean, why did you form the opinion that it was strange to them? Well, they are even more conservative than we were from a from sexuality standpoint. Uh, I mean, that's just, we're talking the 1840s, it's pre-Victorian, but but it was very Victorian, even though the, the timeline is a little early. Uh, the You can't prove a negative, so you can't prove something didn't happen. But And we can understand why women wouldn't have complained, because they were devout. But the fact that nobody reported it, uh, none of the husbands did. There's 14 husbands. Nobody says anything about it. But the, the, the biggest thing that is surprising is that nobody defended it. Because you can bet if Zina were practicing sexual polyandry, somebody would have asked about it. And Zina or one of her brothers, Dimmick or Oliver Huntington, would have said, well, you know, Joseph said it was okay, or Joseph gave this discussion, or Joseph gave this revelation. You see, it's interesting because Joseph's first polyandrous marriage was in October of 41. 20 months go by and he dictates the revelation, July 12 of 1843. Now, if Joseph were practicing sexual polyandry, wouldn't you have expected him to throw a verse in there justifying that behavior? Instead, he discusses three polyandrous situations, one of which would have applied to Joseph, and labels them all adultery. Strange behavior if he's practicing sexual polyandry. Okay, I understand. So you're saying by virtue of the fact that nobody is throwing a stink about it, they would have. They would. People would have found out about it. It would have caused a, a scandal in some in some way, and they would have thrown a stink about it. And the fact that we don't have any record of that kind of a, a scandal or a conflict shows that there probably wasn't a scandal and a conflict. Is that is that? Well, not only that there wasn't a scandal or conflict, I don't think it occurred. If you right. if you study the comments when they were taking affidavits in 1869, and again when Andrew Jensen's doing his his research. It's like it didn't even exist. The people are treating all the marriages kind of equally. They were all his wives, and nobody's worrying about defending any kind of sexual polyandry weirdness. There's just no anxiety manifested by anybody regarding this alleged phenomenon. And, and that is surprising if it had gone on, and in my mind. Okay. I, I want to go back just because I think I neglected to ask this, and but it's probably an appropriate question. You alluded to the error in the footnote in in another book that you haven't named. Can you describe that kind of an error? What would, you know, what would the error look like? I mean, misreading a document or just misunderstanding a document? I believe that the, uh, the, ed the author that I spoke with knew there was a problem with it, but was over, overridden uh, by the other author. But what kind um, of a problem is what I'm asking? Well, it was quoting a document that was restricted down at the church archives. So getting in there and, and verifying it was not easy. And at that time, when the book was written, they may not have gotten permission. I was never denied permission on anything, but they may not have been able to verify it. She didn't tell me that. But um, now that we're able to get in, and, and I've got I've got a transcript of that very document, and clearly it doesn't say anything about sexuality. In fact, none of the the uh, 
the documents in that collection talk about sexuality at all. So she references a document um, that she didn't have a- access to, and someone was referring to that document and made a misstatement about it, and she uses that as a source. Yeah. And okay. in fact, it just in, in their defense, Melissa Lott was asked, were you Joseph Smith's wife in very deed? And she answered yes. So probably the the other author just juxtaposed Zina Huntington and Melissa Lott, because that's where the language comes from. And it's the only place where we find that language in any of the wives' uh, discussions of, of the wives' involvement. With okay. Section, I, I, I want to ask you, when you, were, when you were researching and you were going into the church archives and they were giving you access, why were they giving you access that they haven't given to other scholars? You know, I think, um, I think, you know, I, I'd like to say that they've just become more open. Um, the fact that they, they knew I was an active believing member certainly didn't hurt me. Um, but I have talked with individuals who aren't members of our church and, and other than the system is, is a little frustrating because you go down there and, and the first people you meet are missionaries who really don't understand historical documents very well. And it can be a, a, a bit time consuming, but if you can get into one of the archivists, um, they've, they've said, yeah, yeah, we get access now. So whatever, if there was censoring or if there was restrictions back in the nineties, um, I, I think most of that is gone now. It's just the process because it, there's a lot of missionaries in it. Sometimes it's slower than we would like. So you're saying it's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape you have to go through. Um, actually they've made it quite easy. You can do an online form. It goes right to the committee. They meet on Thursdays. And it was, so it was about a week turnaround and I just go down with a copy of the email saying you can have access and show it to the person at the front. And then 15 minutes later, I had the document. Could I fill uh, out one of these forms? Yeah. Yeah. Really? I, I can send you the link. Uh, one of the times <laughs> though, I did have one of the, uh, the archivists standing behind me, making sure that I only copied that, those pages in this letter book because it was a huge letter book and I only had permission to, to copy pages 46 through 49. And so they they stood there and watched me to make sure that I didn't go outside of that. I mean, the person didn't know who I was or anything. He just knew that that was the rule. And so I typed very fast. So, so now I want to talk about, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the difficult aspects of polygamy. And, and obviously, you are dedicated to Joseph Smith. You must have a testimony of him. Can I ask how that came to be? Do you have personal experience with praying about Joseph Smith or receiving any kind of spiritual inspiration in that regard? You know, I get a lot of heartburn when I hear people say, I was inspired to write this song or this lyric or this book or this poem. Because what I'm hearing when they say that is that, look, this came from God, you better pay attention. So um, there have been a lot of coincidences, a lot of coincidences. I've had feelings. I've, you know, there have been things that have come to me that if, if it came to me from me, then man, am I a smart guy? Cause, cause, uh, uh, and, and, and that's probably all that I would say, though I, I maybe relate one, one occurrence. I've, I've never felt Joseph or anything there, but sometimes I wonder if Emma wasn't um, looking over my shoulder. I'm sorry. Um, when I finished the last chapter with Emma, and I love Emma, and we need to be nicer to Emma, but when I finished the last chapter, and uh, it was the last edit, I'd, I, you go back and forth between the edit editor was Levina Fielding Anderson edited both volume one and two. And I had, uh, she'd sent me her final copy and I'd gone through it and I'd found two or three little things. And I had just finished that off and, and sent a hit a send cause it was an attached document to Levina. And 
Two minutes later, I get a phone call from some woman I've never met who got, it's my landline phone, which is in the phone book, not my cell phone. She's looked it up and she had a question about my website. And then after she gets the answer to that, she says, oh, and by the way, I've been involved with presentations on Emma and I think the church members need to realize that she really needs to be treated better. And we gave this one presentation where people actually thought they had seen a dark-haired lady who was relatively tall standing in the back uh, on the on the podium during part of the presentation. And and I just, I, I didn't know what to make of that. We talked for a few more minutes. She hung up, but I just thought, you know, how coincidental. Two minutes after I'm completely done with this chapter, somebody calls to tell me about this spiritual experience she had. Now, I didn't have that. But these kind of coincidences are just uh, interesting to me. Right. Um... I hope you don't feel like I'm badgering you, but at any time, have you prayed to ask if Joseph Smith was a true prophet and if he was commanded to practice polygamy? Just, are you willing to answer that question? Um, do you know, I, I don't recall having done that. And I, I can tell you that my convictions are so much stronger than when I started this, but I can't point to any one day, month, or event that actually was a turning point in the whole process. It's just that after we get into the evidence, and, and I admit right off the bat, you don't get everything. Juanita Brooks said you don't get everything, so there's no illusion in my mind that we have everything. We've kicked the can down the road a bunch more. I'm sure there'll be other articles and books on this topic, and I, I hope there will be. But I have been able to look at all of this evidence and, and not find anything that isn't... A, well, you know, maybe that's a stretch, but there are things that are question marks just because we don't have all of the answers. Mary Heron would be when I mentioned the, the third wife. We just don't know. Uh, we have so little evidence on that. So there's still some question marks, but I haven't found anything that has, has shaken my, my belief in him. And as the pieces come together and as I come to appreciate the theology behind it, it, it my convictions have greatly grown. Did when you look back at your life, was there ever a time where you gained a testimony of the church as a whole or, you know, of the Book of Mormon that you can kind of point to as the source of your testimony of the church now? When I was a missionary in Venezuela and I read teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith for the first time, and if you've read that, there's kind of weird stuff in there that he's saying. And for me, that was, it wasn't a crisis. But I remember asking the question, this is weird. Is it true? And that's where I, I feel like I, I really gained my first belief in Joseph, a belief that's just continued to grow since then. And that was on your mission? On my mission, yeah. Do you think that you had a testimony of Joseph before your mission at all? Or do, was, that, was that the beginning? Well, I had a real social testimony of the church back then. And, uh, you know, you just, you, you, you fall in line and you do, you know, you tow the rope and, and all, and, and that's what I did. And it's hard for me to look back and know how much of it was a conviction. I always felt peace inside and, and believing is easy. And, and I have children that believing for them is easy, but I, I know people where believing is hard and, and they do the same things I do and it's just hard for them. And I don't understand that. I'm just grateful that for me, it hasn't been difficult. Are you open with your children about all of this stuff that you've found and how have they reacted? Um, my oldest daughter, uh, at first I couldn't talk to her. She'd just go ballistic. I, I don't want to hear about polygamy. She put her hands over her ears, but she actually, um, is putting together her own little, uh, videos that are on YouTube where she discusses church uh, topics and one of them is polygamy. So she's come a long way, but I think she's seen me wrestle with it and still maintain my belief. And that may have helped her a little bit. And your other children are okay with that? Um, they seem to be. Uh, and they know about it. 
Yeah, yeah, they do. They see me in there typing for five years. It's been it's been a real uh, focus for me. I'm glad it's done. So glad. <laughs> it's been a lot of polygamy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what has been the reception in terms of the apologists and the scholarly community of the church? Have you have you had a good reception in terms of the the three volumes? I've been invited to speak at fair twice on this topic. And of course, in many people's minds, that makes me an apologist no matter what. And if, if that's it, then, you know, it is what it is. But um, so they've been favorable. And and the people down at the church uh, and my friends that are in the church history department, uh, Elder Jensen was very supportive. Of course, he doesn't know, I'm not, it's not an endorsement, but he, he was always helpful and kind and and uh, was anxious to see the books. Once he gets through them, then maybe we'll know better how he feels. And and uh, so he uh, has a copy of the books, and he's, he's he told read me them. he's ordered them. I I, yeah, okay. I sent out a, a blanket email saying they're available for pre-order, and and uh, and he he answered and just said I I've ordered them. I'm excited to read them. So okay, do you feel that it is important for the members of the church, the general members of the church, to know this information? No, not you at don't. all. Um, it's gospel meat. Uh, polygamy will always be meat. And if you give polygamy to the milk drinker, they will, they will perish. I'm an anesthesiologist. Many times I've been called into the emergency room, into the operating room because somebody's got a piece of meat caught in their throat. And if I'm putting them to sleep and it gets in their trachea, then they could die. And so it's always, there's a few seconds there where we're getting the airway secured that it's, it's tense. And the same principle applies at section 19, verse 22, where the Lord tells Joseph early on, don't give meat to people who need milk. But part of the reason I'm coming out now with this, and, and that's been the policy, that's why the brethren haven't discussed it. That's why it's not on LDS.org and never will be. It's meat. Actually, it will be on a church website that they're putting up. I know from talking to some people down there, they're going to hit on all these hard topics, but it will not be in the enzyme because it's meat and there's there's people, you know, in Zimbabwe reading the Liahona and, and stuff, so you're not going to see it there. And if if they have questions, then I think that there needs to be answers available to them, and that's where we're going with all of this, and that's what my books are designed to help with. But this doesn't need to be in the curriculum. I love our theology that accompanies it, and, and we get a lot of eternal marriage theology. But if you think very la very long on eternal marriage, you come to the conclusion there's going to be equal numbers of worthy people or we're going to have polygamy, and that's where there need to be answers available for people who are looking. I, um, I have read that the theology at the time in Nauvoo was very different in terms of our theology today. When we go to the temple and, and we're sealed for time and all eternity, um, that the emphasis is, is on families. But at the time that Joseph Smith was um, teaching this doctrine, it's been written that the theology was more a focus on um, that some of these men were, were made like gods on earth and they were given their own kingdoms and then, and that whole families were sometimes sealed. Like for example, um, Thomas Alexander writes about how Wilfred Woodruff was sealed to actual family units. Um, how does that theology mesh with the theology of polygamy? Um, is that relevant at all or was that separate? Um, it's a huge question, and um, it, it could be a long answer. And there, I have a whole chapter in Volume 3 that deals with adoption. 
And uh, it's easy to talk about the marriage sealings, but the sealing authority of Elijah also allows parents to be sealed to children. And uh, that was not a, a discussion point during Joseph's lifetime. So far as we know, he said nothing about it. When, when the Nauvoo Temple was open, Joseph was not sealed by proxy to any of his children, even his deceased children. He was not sealed to his parents. There were no adoption sealings to Joseph except one by John Bernheisel. So if it, was an, if it brought advantages to Joseph, he didn't get those. And people, a lot of confusion occurred after that. So um, you're saying that Joseph did not teach the doctrine of adoption in in reference to to the sealing power? We have no record that he did. Okay. It's not in section 132. He makes some oblique references to it in, se- in section 128 about binding the dispensations together, not necessarily children and parents. This comes later, but even in the Nauvoo Temple, there are only 211 adoption sealings. And they're, and they're performed after his death. They're after Joseph's death. And again, Joseph was only sealed to one person. Um, there's a lot of confusion during this period because John, John D. Lee convinces 22 people to be sealed to him as their father. And those 22 do so, but he's the only person to have everybody as this big family sealed to him. Now, there were a lot of people sealed to Brigham and John Taylor and Heber C. Kimball, but these are people being sealed because they wanted to get into the chain and they knew that the leaders would be in the chain. But John D. Lee um, had people sealed to him in the idea that maybe it brought an advantage to John D. Lee. And so after the sealing, he kind of expects all these new children to take care of him. And within a year, they've all left him. So there's a period, though, where their apostles are politicking to get people sealed to them. But this is after the Nauvoo Temple, and it has to be done in a temple. So those sealings could not be performed at that time. And people want to quote that that uh, time period, some things that were taught then to show that if you have more biological children or more adopted children or more plural wives, that it gives somebody an eternal advantage. I argue no that that is not Joseph's teachings, and it certainly is not a later teaching of our church leaders. Is there an origination of the... T- I mean, does there is there a primary source where Brigham Young or one of the leaders of the church said, this is the teaching and this is where it comes from? Nothing. Not on adoption. Um, in fact, it's curious because in 1847, Brigham has a vision of Joseph Smith. And uh, he relates... It, it's a wonderful vision, the way it's related, but... The, uh, the interesting thing is here Joseph is there in front of Brigham, and Brigham could ask him anything. And he asks him about the law of adoption. Now, now that just tells you that there's questions in Brigham's mind about the uh, law of adoption. And, and Joseph's answer is, is really oblique. He says, tell the people to keep the spirit. And then he describes what that means. And then he says, tell them to keep the spirit and that they will find themselves organized just as they were before the world began. So it's not an answer to to how do we deal with the adoption issue. It actually is not resolved until 1894 when Wilford Woodruff comes out and says we will be adopted to our literal parents, our our biological parents. And, you know, Elijah came to turn the hearts of the children to the parents, not to some adoptive parent or somebody they're unrelated to. And that was part of the part of the reasoning there. But for quite a while, there was there was some confusion until Wilford Woodruff clarified that later. 
Is there any evidence, and maybe you don't know this, but is there any evidence that the law of adoption ever got crossed with the law of polygamy and it was used as justification for a relationship or some kind of marriage relationship or sexual relationship? Do you know, um, there are statements by Brigham Young saying that men must be sealed to men. And I've, I've run into one or two people who are saying, oh, that was some kind of a homosexual thing. But, but the good scholars haven't done that. Um, they, they understand it's, it's father to son is being alluded to in those kinds of marriages. In those kind of ceilings, it's vertical. It's parent to child, child to parent. Um, so I would say, no, I've, I've not run into anything trying to justify that. Um, the important thing, though, of all of these ceilings is you need to be in the chain. Members of the chain back to Adam are the church of the firstborn. And in Joseph Smith's uh, theology, those are those who can be exalted. And so if you're not part of the chain, you're out. And that's why the vertical uh, parent-child ceilings are just as important. It's just in the next life, the marriages are going to persist in a different way uh, than the, the child-to-parent ceiling relationships. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask, we had you, and this is just going back to what you were saying about the milk and the meat. Um, from a perspective of someone who, <clears throat> when I was 13 years old, I asked my father, point blank, did Joseph Smith have plural wives? Because I had heard um, at, at this point in church that he did not. That Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. He taught it, but he did not practice it. And um, I asked my dad if Joseph Smith had had plural wives. And he answered me honestly and said yes. And I asked him, did he have sexual relationships with those women? And my dad said, probably and so I knew at a really early age, and um, at that point I wrote Joseph Smith off <laughs> as a 13-year-old. <laughs> I did not like that information. Um, and, you know, it struggled during the years. And, and obviously, you know, now that I'm older and have read a, a lot about the topic, I look back on that and I'm very grateful that at an early age I was given that information because it gave me a lot more time, I think. And, um, it gave me the, the benefit of maturity and to, to kind of really, you know, sit with that for quite a few years. And, and it, and it gave me the luxury of studying over the years and not, and, and, but also, um, I, because I had that information in early age, I was very aware of how often it was not acknowledged, not, talked about. I had seminary teachers who said the exact opposite. I, I heard, um, you know, teachers in church that did not know anything about it. So I was always kind of aware that members didn't know. Um, and I've learned since and come in contact with so many people who, who discover that, discover the information that we've talked about here and, and lost faith in the church over it, that it is very difficult for people. It's difficult for me to look at some of these things. And you think, and you've stated, or you've expressed that it's meat and it's not, it's not for people to know. But do you feel that if it was information that generally, that maybe was presented, that it wouldn't be an issue as much? for people like inoculation that word has come up a lot of the time and like you can inoculate your children against some of the problems can you talk a little bit about that 
Yes, uh, I I would agree with you. Um, it, it, but it, it it'll always be me because it deals with sexuality, and the only option other than to believe God commanded it is that it was libido driven, and it's such an easy conclusion. And if you think that was driving Joseph then who's going to believe in him as a prophet? So it boils down to how much faith do you have that God would actually restore this and even command it? That takes faith. And and most of us don't have that faith at an early age, but we can put it on the shelf until we do. And so then at least when we hear it later on, we, we aren't surprised by it, but most of us may not have that level of faith early on. And and I don't know that there's a real answer to that. It's not something that I want to do. I've learned already that when I talk to people about this, I like question and answer. Because if I just start spouting off on stuff, I will raise more questions than I provide answers in a very short period of time. And and that's just not a good place to be because it's a complex topic and it requires faith. You've got to believe that God did it. And it's unfair. As I said earlier, it's not fair to women. So that requires faith that God would require something here. I think polygamy in eternity and this is speculation, but I don't think there's a plural wife in the celestial kingdom that feels anything less than a monogamous wife because there, there is no time as we know it here. I don't think any woman will feel fragmented in, in regards to her husband's love, resources, whatever. But here on earth, it is unfair. So to think that God could be the author of this or commanding this, that requires a lot of faith. And so if you if you saddle somebody with lesser faith with that, it can easily overwhelm what they have. So I don't know the answer to that. Inoculation is great, but, but who makes those decisions on when to do it? So you wait for people to approach you with questions before you talk about these issues. Well, my kids got inoculated early, but they've seen me wade through all of this stuff and still remain a believer. And, and that observation... And in fact, maybe I, if, if I could just tell you about Don Bradley, you know, I've mentioned him several times. He's listed as an, an associate or a, an association with uh, on volumes one and two. But Don, when I hired him, had hair clear out to here. And I'm, I'm putting way out. He had almost Afro level hair. And I knew he'd been on a mission, but I didn't know where he was on, on with respect to his church beliefs. And, and I knew that we would meet on Thursday morning or Thursday nights and Sunday mornings. And he was in his Levi's, so he wasn't going to church that I could tell. But he's such a great researcher and a good guy. I didn't ask him about it. Um, well, after we were done, uh, you know, it took about two years. I employed him. Six months later, he calls me and said, Brian, I've been rebaptized. And I didn't know he was out of the church, but he told me that about a year or two before uh, we'd been working together, he'd had a, a crisis of faith. It was just atheism. He just decided there was no God. It had nothing to do with Mormon theology or Mormon history. Um, it was a, just, a, 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 is there a God or isn't there moment for him? He asked for his name to be removed. And uh, and then six months after I've hired him, and, and keep in mind, during that two-year period, he saw every document and heard of every document dealing with Joseph Smith's polygamy that there is, essentially. I mean, I'm sure we missed some, but he saw it all, and he had to understand it all because he's type, typing it up for me. And here's a guy who's seen everything, and he's getting back into the church. He's being rebaptized. So I think that observation is helpful to some members who saying, okay, I don't have time to do what Don Bradley or Brian Hales did, but here's a couple of guys who aren't too weird, or maybe they are, but uh, but they've seen it all, and and maybe I'm just gonna gonna think that they would have found something if there was something to be found. So you you talk about um, you mentioned that it's unfair to women, and I think that that's really important for you to say because 
that's how women feel. It's unfair to women. But I want to say, and I want to ask your opinion, do you, do you see room in the theology or the doctrine that would indicate that maybe women who are, I mean, men who have been sealed to more than one woman in the celestial kingdom, that those women could change their minds in the celestial kingdom? That they could decide, I mean, you say the power is to loose as well, that, that, that there's room for that. And then I want you just to talk about how do you reconcile the unfairness? Excellent questions, uh, difficult questions. Um, actually, the first one is not too difficult. You know, when Christ said that, that there is no marrying or giving in marriage in the next life, we believe that very literally. Now, the Christian churches think that means there's no marriage in the next life. We take it more literally that you don't perform the ceremonies there. So I would say that, that there will be a lot of adjusting, I believe, during the millennium. And a woman, well, and, and there has been even here, there was a woman, uh, Hannah Goddard, who had been sealed to Lorenzo Snow when she was young. They hadn't consummated the marriage. She later gets involved in an adulterous rel- uh, relationship that is later sealed, but Lorenzo Snow relinquishes her, even though she was sealed to him, and then she's later resealed to somebody else. And we see this, John D. Lee had a wife who was 12 or 14, sealed to him, she falls in love with one of his sons, and so and he she isn't she doesn't have uh, relations with John D. Lee, and so in the meantime she falls in love with one of his sons, and so he relinquishes her, and and she's resealed to the son. So these kind of adjustments occurred even here on Earth. I think there'll be a fair amount of that going on during the millennium, where maybe some of the ceilings that we have now will be adjusted, and uh, but by the end of the millennium everything will be sealed and there will be no more. So once once people are resurrected, I think that's the crossing line. We will be set. But, you know, Brigham Young made the comment that you needn't think you will be attracted to a resurrected being. He says they're beautiful. He may have been talking more physical than, than you know, maybe romantic or whatever. But it's a different game there. And it, I think it would be easy to, to be married to almost anybody there, even though some of the polyandrous women seem to have chosen Joseph. Um, I, I don't think it would be hard in that realm. Based okay. on okay, and then the unfairness. The, the unfairness, um, I think it's indefensible. I mean, it's sexist and unfair. There's just no question in my mind. I'm sure that the husbands have to split their resources, and that would be a challenge to the husbands, but not in the same way that the poor woman is alone for, you know, five days out of seven or, I mean, you know, however many wives there are, it just would be very hard. But, but let me say this. I think that um, God is more concerned about... And this isn't actually polygamy, but more concerned about order in his church than he is about unrighteous dominion. God has put men to preside in the marriage, and he knew that men are weak and they would be unrighteous dominion, and that's undesirable. But apparently, because he could have equalized that by just not making men preside, you know, I don't know how you would have done it, but if you'd have had women as they do in the RLDS, the Community of Christ, and so many other religions today, but but apparently God was more worried about having order there than, than the fact that giving these men this presiding position in the marriage is going to have a lot of unrighteous dominion, and, and we've seen that, and it's indefensible. But um, that, I think, is, is an interesting observation. It applies to marriages uh, all the way around. But I, I don't—the unfairness issue directly is—it's indefensible. You can't defend it other than to say that in eternity I don't think that the unfairness persists. So you feel as though a loving God 
recognizes that it's unfair. He knows that it's unfair. He allows for it anyway, and that the the resolution to that will be that it will not be unfair in the next life. That's my theory, and it, it may not be satisfying to the women who are listening, um, but I do believe that... Um, for example, you know, I believe I have a relationship with my Heavenly Father, and if my neighbor converts and and gets baptized and has a, a new relationship that wasn't there before, that relationship doesn't take away from my relationship in any way. And so I theorize that a husband in the eternal world would not... Uh, he would be able to relate to all of his wives in a way we can't comprehend, but so that they would be just as comfortable in that relationship as a monogamous wife would be in that in that setting. But it's all theoretical and it's kind of out there, but that's my thoughts. Do you feel that God <clears throat> empathizes with the women in this situation? I mean, uh, Todd Compton's book um, kind of, it's hard to read because you recognize that the women did suffer. And they were lonely, and there were difficulties, and it was hard. And they had relationships with God. But, I mean, you know, as, as a, a modern LDS woman, you know, issues, sexist issues in the church are very relevant. A lot of women struggle with them. Um, they leave the church over them. Um, and some stay and want and, and are trying to affect change. Are the difficulties that are presented by polygamy so residual that sometimes they just can't be resolved? I mean, or are they? Do you feel as though the church can change and grow away from that and make it more fair? Wow. Um... I, I think that there will be an element of unfairness here in this celestial globe because God has designed men to preside in the ma in the marriage. And no matter what the church does, it's, it's a theological point that I don't see there any way to get around. And we could say it's unfair. Uh, I, and I, I don't see that we can, can do anything with it. That's an inadequate answer. I'd love to say that when women are suffering because of that inequality, that God's Spirit is there in greater abundance for them. But as we see women leaving the church, we conclude that isn't true. Um, and there were women who had, they reported visions of, of learning the correctness of polygamy. And then we later hear them just cursing it and, and you know, uh, having so much suffering on account of it. So God is there, but so is the suffering. And are the men suffering as much? I don't know that I see it, uh, certainly not in the same quantity. Can I explain this inequality? Probably not. Okay. Can you talk about the the qualities in God that you most identify with? What is your personal... Um, if I asked you to describe God from your personal standpoint, your personal relationship with him, how would you describe him? I haven't read Terrell Gibbons' book about a, a God who weeps, but I love those verses in Moses because, and I, and I, and, and for those that aren't familiar with it, it's, um, God is seeing the wickedness at the time of Noah and, and he is weeping and that's the rain or there's this analogy to the rain that comes down because he's going to destroy everybody because of their wickedness. And Enoch is, is dumbfounded. Enoch goes, well, you're God of all, 
you know, of all creation, of everything. How can you weep? And, and then he weeps later on. Um, and then if we go to third Nephi, uh, I want to say 17, but somewhere in there, um, Christ, um, goes off and he prays and he says, I'm troubled because of the wickedness of the house of Israel. And see, the house of Israel, this is your, this is first string. You know, this isn't your second string or third string people. These are the ones that are supposed to be winning the game for you here. And they're wicked. And he's troubled by that. And, and, and that's the God that, that I love. And, and he's the one who, when the inequalities come, and James E. Talmage has a nice quote where he says, the day will come when the inequalities is, or, or a similar word will be made up to the women because of the way this terrest- this celestial life is treating them. Uh, implying the unfairness is is acknowledged there. Um, I believe God acknowledges it too, and perhaps there's no other way. If if you think about it for a minute, there's almost no way that two genders could come down here and be totally equally treated, especially with Satan running around. He's going to exploit any inequality that he can. So you could flip-flop it and make the men on the other side, but there's really no way that I could fathom with Satan here and and, and wickedness of there being equality. God didn't make it, but he allows it to happen. And I would like to think that he's there weeping for us and sending, you know, the spiritual reinforcements that everybody needs, especially those women who are the victims of it. Um, All right. So um, thank you for this interview. It's been remarkable, and I've really enjoyed the time. I want to mention to the listeners that um, you can pre-order the um, three-volume set on Amazon for a discounted price. I think it's around $67. It retails for $100 for all three, and they've discounted it down, I understand. If you pre-order. Pre-order. Okay, and the release date is February 26th. February 26th, so you've got about a week. Uh Um, And then you will be able to order it on, on Amazon or from Kofer Books, is that correct? Right, right. Okay. Benchmark um, has it as well. And I will be at Benchmark on February 27th, and I will be at Pioneer Book in Orem uh, on Mar- March 9th. Okay, great. Um, also, you can go to a thoughtfulfaith.org and find links to the to the books on Amazon, and, um, and we'll put a link up to your website as well. And um, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been a wonderful interview, and I really have enjoyed it and, and learned quite a bit. I'm really excited to read the books. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a privilege to be, be on this program. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com.
силы, силы в